Well, we made it. Yay! It's our last week in Deuteronomy, and you all now can say you've studied Deuteronomy. Isn't that amazing? It's been wonderful. Next year, we're going to be back into the New Testament. We're going to be doing First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. So I hope you all can make it. It'll be great. Um, but as we say goodbye to um, this rich book of scripture, which has been no empty word for us, I hope that this year in Deuteronomy will forever change the way you read and study scripture. As you continue to study God's word, it is my hope and my prayer that you will continue to see the seeds that have been planted in this book um, that have grown and spread throughout the rest of scripture. I hope you will continue to see this consistency of God's word, the singular message of God's word that we see planted in Deuteronomy and being developed and expanded throughout the rest of the book. So that's my hope and that's my prayer for you. Um, Let's begin our time with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, I thank you so much for your goodness and your mercies to us today. I uh, thank you for the book of Deuteronomy and for the, the fact that it is a book that is so rich in helping us to see who you are. Lord, I ask as we look at this last closing part of it to, today that you would continue to open our eyes and continue to um, work in our hearts. Continue to reveal yourself to us. And I pray that the words, um, that the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight um, as we move forward today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in Deuteronomy 32, and we're going to be starting our time in verse 48. Deuteronomy 32, 48 says, That very day the Lord spoke to Moses, Go up this mountain of the Abiram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession, and die on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor, and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel, for you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. So we come to the end of Deuteronomy. We come to the end of Moses' life, and it is now time, the Lord says, for Moses to leave his people and to head to Mount Nebo, where he's going to be gathered with his people In other words, he's going to die. And I want us to take note of what the Lord of what what the Lord reveals to us about death, even in as we look at Moses' death. He says he's going to be gathered to his people. That means that God is the God of the living, not the dead. Moses, in being gathered to his people, is being gathered to a living people. Disembodied souls, yes, for a period of time, but life continues after death. And so Moses is going to be gathered to his people. We also are reminded once again that Moses is not going to get to go into the land. Why? 
because he had broken faith with God in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah, in the wilderness of Zin, and because he did not treat God as holy. But why, the question I'm sure is in your mind as it is in mine, why does God keep reminding us of this? We've heard this at least three times in the book of Deuteronomy, this reminder that Moses cannot go in. And there's a couple things I think we can learn from this reminder. Moses is being used as an example in Israel. And to us today, I would say. Why? Because there's significance in what he did in breaking faith with God, in not holding him as holy. When we look at the story of Moses' sin, I know you and I both look at that. It's like, okay, that's not, not, not that big of a deal. But it is a big deal. The Lord's teaching us that it is a big deal to disobey him, to go against what he has called him to do. It's breaking faith with God. That word breaking faith is used in a marital term as in breaking faith, breaking the covenant, the marriage covenant. It's it's adultery. So what he did in that moment of sin and disobedience was spiritual adultery. And it's significant and it's serious. He did not esteem God who is holy as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. And so we see the significance of disobedience to God for all of us. And the fact that God did not just turn a blind eye to Moses' sin shows us the impartiality of God. We are not like God, right? We would see a man like Moses. He's in a position of prominence. There's not been a greater prophet to that point, aside from Moses. He's a great man. He's been faithful, and yet he sinned, and God didn't just kind of turn a blind eye on that. And that teaches us about the significance of sin, and God will not turn a blind eye to sin. He cannot, or he would not be just. And we know, and this hints at the future need for Jesus to come and absorb the punishment for our sin on that cross. But even for a man as great as Moses, he was going to experience the the consequences for his disobedience. It reveals a beautiful truth about God. He is impartial in judgment. Our good does not outweigh our bad. From the great to the small, judgment comes individually to each. And we also see in this reminder God's grace in that justice. You're not going to go into the land, but you will see it. You will see it. And we're going to look at that in a few minutes. But we also are, we see what the appropriate response is. Moses shows us an appropriate response to um, his judgment, to his, his punishment, and that's one of humility and submission. Aside from that one time that we saw him pleading in prayer to God to relent, we have seen Moses submit to God's will for his life. And we see in that submission the continual worship of God in Moses. I mean, Moses continually, repeatedly, through the word of God, has been talking and proclaiming God's excellencies. He continuously proclaims the name of the Lord to the people of Israel and to us today. He continually ascribes greatness to his God. And so he submits and he continues to worship. 
And we see that, that um, ascribing the name of the Lord greatness to his God in the way he closes his final words to Israel. He is about to leave, but before he leaves, before he heads to the mountain, he blesses Israel. And both in his beginning and his ending of his blessing, he begins and ends in the same way. He speaks of the greatness of God, just like he did in the song that we looked at last week. So it is fitting that his final words, the final words that we hear from Moses, would be that of a blessing. So let's take a few minutes and let's look at his blessing to Israel, remembering that these are his last words to them. Now, the blessing of Moses will turn our attention to the immediate future of Israel. It has a strong militaristic threat. And remember, they're going into the land to fight. And so his blessing is a word of encouragement to Israel as they prepare to fight and um, win some victories. Look at verse, chapter 33, verse 1. This is the blessing with which the, Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. He starts all the way back at Sinai and reminds the people of the God who showed himself, revealed himself on Mount Sinai. The God who came down in a dark cloud and fire and his thundering voice spoke from the mountain. He reminds the people of this theophany, of this picture of God who was great and who entered into covenant with the people. His love for these people. So he begins his blessing reminding them of who God is. And the next part of this blessing that goes on, it is believed that it was possibly a response to Moses' words by the people. They would have verbally out loud when they heard those words because this would have been repeated to them in ceremonies in the future, this blessing. Um, when they heard the words about the Lord coming down from Sinai, they would have responded with the second half of verse 3. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you, when Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. Thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun, or Israel, when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. So it, it is believed that the people would respond verbally, audibly, with their response to this God. Let's continue on, verse 6. Let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. So just like Jacob, when he gave his blessing on the 12 sons, Moses goes through, through each of the 12 sons of Israel and blesses each one. Then he starts with Reuben, the firstborn. And his blessing of Reuben is found in the promise of continuation of his tribe. While they will be few, they will live and they will not die. The tribe would continue on. Verse 7, and this he said of Judah, hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him into his people. With your hands contend for him and be a help against his adversaries. According to Numbers 2 verse 9, Judah was to march at the head of the army. Being in that position put them in a very dangerous position. And so Moses' blessing was threefold, that God would hear their call for help. That God would bring Judah back in safety from, from their fight, from the battles. And thirdly, 
Although Judah will with their own hand contend, ultimately it would be God who would be contending for them. So this is the summary of the blessing of Judah. Let's look at verse um, 8 and the blessing on Levi. Now, Levi and Joseph's are the longest blessings. Both of them have the longest blessings in Moses' blessing. Verse 8 says, And of Levi, he said, Give to Levi your Thummim and your Urim to your godly one, whom you tested at Massa, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Bless, O Lord, his substance and accept the work of his hands. Crush the loins of his adversaries of those who hate him that they rise not again. So in, within Levi's blessing, it indicates the priestly role that Levi was to have. They are called the godly ones. And it, he, it reminds them, they remind them of when they were tested at Massa in, that, in the wilderness, they had kept the covenant, the tribe of Levi. They did not fall. They did not fail the test, but they kept the covenant of Levi. So to them, they were to get the Thuman and the Urim. Those two things, they were the rocks that they would use to determine the Lord's will at that time. In other words, part of their, the tribe of Levi was to be judges according to the will of God when cases were too difficult to be solved in their towns. And they would come and they would um, pursue like the knowledge of God and the will of God in these two stones. They also were to um, have an educational role in Israel. We talked about that a little bit last week, where the tribe of Levi was scattered throughout the land of Israel, and the purpose that they were to do that was to teach Israel, Jacob, the rules and Israel the laws. So they were to teach the word of God to the people of Israel so that they would remember and not forget what God's word had said so that they would be able to pass it down to the next generation so that they would walk according to God's ways and be able to experience the blessing of the land. And then finally, the third um, area of their duties as priests was to to, um, lead the formal system of worship. They shall put incense before and hold burnt offerings on your altar. So this is the part of the blessing of the tribe of Levi, that they were to lead the people of Israel in godliness. Let's continue on, verse 12. Of Benjamin, he said, the beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. Do you remember back to the story of Jacob and his two sons, Benjamin and Joseph? They were the sons of his favorite wife, and they were the beloved children of Israel. And so even in this blessing, we see an acknowledgement of Benjamin as the beloved of the Lord. And his blessing is beautiful. It is found in the encompassing presence of God. The The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. For Benjamin to be beloved is to be surrounded and encompassed by the presence of God. What a beautiful blessing um, that we can um, understand, I think, what it means to truly be blessed. To truly be blessed as a people is to experience the all-encompassing presence of God. 
Verse 13 begins um, the blessing of Joseph. And of Joseph, he said, Blessed by the, Lord be, by the Lord be his land, with the choicest gifts of heaven above and of the deep that crouches beneath, with the choicest fruits of the sun and the rich yield of the months, with the finest produce of the ancient mountains and the abundance of the everlasting hills, with the best gifts of the earth and its fullness and the favor of him who dwells in the bush. May these rest on the head of Joseph, on the pate of him who is prince among his brothers. A firstborn bull, he has majesty, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples, all of them, to the ends of the earth. There are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and there are the thousands of Manasseh. So Joseph, the other beloved son of Jacob, with, has one of the longest blessings in Moses' blessing, in keeping with the fact that this tribe had great prominence in Israel's early history. The tribe of Joseph was made up of both of his sons, Manasseh and of Ephraim. And we remember the story, the younger son was given preeminence over the older son. So in this blessing, it's twofold. It's material blessing in verses 13 through 16, with the source of that blessing being God himself. And he calls, Moses calls on, he says um, in verse 16, with the best gifts of the earth and its fullness and the favor of him who dwells in the bush. How did Moses first meet God? In the bush. So he even recalls in his blessing to Joseph just that first initial meeting with God in the burning bush. And he is the source of the blessing. He is the source of the rich resources and material blessing that would come to Joseph, to his tribe. The second part of the blessing of Joseph is military strength. And we see that in verse 17. A firstborn bull, he has majesty, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples of all, all of them to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousand of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Let's continue on. Verse 18 says, And of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. They shall call peoples to their mountains. They, there they offer right sacrifices, for they draw from the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the, the sand. So Zebulun and Issachar are rejoicing. Both tribes are called to rejoice. Zebulun in his going out, Issachar in his coming in. So in other words, rejoice in every aspect of your lives. Rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. And Issachar and Zebulun, apparently because out of the abundance of their blessing, they would draw from all of the rest of the Israel to their location for festivals celebrating the goodness of God and celebrating the abundance that they have. Let's continue on. Verse 20. And of Gad, he said, Blessed be he who enlarges Gad. Gad crouches like a lion. He tears off arm and scalp. He chose the best of the land for himself. For there a commander's portion was reserved. And he came with the heads of the people. With Israel he executed the justice of the Lord and his judgments for Israel. Now Gad had already received his inheritance. On the east side of the Jordan, they had their land, but they were being called to go with Israel, to go with their brothers, to cross over the Jordan River and to fight on behalf of their brothers. Gad was to play an important part in the coming battles. 
And as a result of this, he is to receive a generous portion of the fruit of the victory that God would give them. Continuing on, verse 22. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's cub that leaps from Bashan. Dan's blessing implies the timidity of youth. He's a lion's cub. And yet, there's great strength. He leaps from Bashan. So there's great strength in Dan, even though he has this uh, timidity of youth. Verse 23, and of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, sated with flavor and full of the blessing of the Lord, possess the lake and the south. So Naphtali's blessing points to the blessing of God that they would receive once they were in the land. And finally, let's look at the last tribe, Asher. Verse 24, and of Asher, he said, most blessed of sons be Asher. Let him be the favorite of his brothers, and let him di dip his foot in oil. Your bars shall be iron and bronze, and as your days, so shall your strength be. Last but not least, we have Asher. The most blessed of sons be Asher is what this blessing says. Asher means happy. It means blessed. This blessing is saying that they will be the most blessed, the most happy amongst all of the tribes of Israel. They would be secure from their enemies, and they would be blessed with strength to live life to the fullest. What a beautiful blessing we have seen Moses pronounce upon each of these individual tribes of Israel. But then he concludes. He concludes, and these are his very last words that we have recorded in scripture. Look at verse 26 with me. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. And so Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine, whose heavens drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. The shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. Beautiful words about the greatness of God and the way in which he will ride in and save the people of Israel. And it points to Israel's happiness being contingent upon who their God is. The happiness of their people is contingent, is based in God himself. The happiness in the land, their peace, their security, their safety is all about the greatness of their God and living in that fellowship and communion with him. This picture that Moses, is, his very final words to us, points us both back to Eden, to that place where God met with man in the cool of the day, walking with them in intimacy, and it points us forward to the final chapters, the closing book of Revelation, when once again, God's dwelling place will be with man. But all of it points to the fact that this isn't really about the land, right? It's really about God himself. 
and living in the presence of God underneath his favor and his blessing. Let's continue on. Deuteronomy 34, verse 1. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. Pisgah basically is a word that means ridge. So another way that we could say this is that Moses went to Mount Nebo, to the summit of the ridge. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over them. Now, let's stop and pause there for just a moment. Moses went up from the plains of Moab to the mountain. What was that walk like? I mean, it's hard for me to even imagine what that's like. I mean, he obviously knows what's about to happen to him. And so what was that walk like for Moses to leave his people and to go into the mountain, basically, to see the land and then to die. But the verse that just kept coming into my head as I thought about this walk that he has taken is Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The Lord was with him on that walk. The Lord was with him on that mountain. This is such a beautiful picture. The Lord's presence in some way was with him. The Lord showed him the land. You can almost picture a visible presence of God standing with Moses on the mountain and saying, look, look and see. And just telling him all the, all the things that the boundary lines and all that he, the, the people of Israel were going to experience and there's, there's mercy, and there's grace, and there's beauty in this, the presence of the Lord being with Moses. Even though he could not himself go in the land, right? Remember, it was because of his sin. Here's God's presence with him in his final moments, speaking to him, showing him, reminding him of the promise that he had made to Abraham to Isaac and Jacob and saying, I am the God who is faithful to my word. You can trust me. I have let you see this with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. You see, the promised land isn't the point. God had promised to the descendants of Abraham that he would give them this land. But this land is symbolizing something that is so much greater It's not about the land. It's about God. It's about God himself. It's about God creating Eden again and his presence being with the people. And while Moses did not get to go into the land, he did experience the presence of God, which was the better thing. Moses was able to find the blessing of God in the presence of God because he lived before the face of God without ever even having to step foot in that land. 
And I love how the Lord is just there with him, interacting with him, speaking to him, showing him all the things of the land. And I love, more than I can even communicate to any of you, how the Lord was with him in his death. The Lord was with him in his death. Moses, beloved of God, closed his eyes on this earth in the presence of God and opened them on the other side in the presence of God. He walked right from this life into the next as if there is no difference. And that's really what Jesus says to us. Does he not? Did he not say, I am the resurrection and the life if you believe in me, you, though you die, you will not die. Basically, for the believers in Christ, just like Moses, who looked in the face of God as he closed his eyes in death and then opened them up on the other side, this is what it's like to die in Christ Jesus. We have the privilege. This is why we don't grieve like the rest of the world grieves. Because we go from one life right into the next life. It's a beautiful thing, and we get the picture of this in this passage. And look at verse 5. It says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died. Now, there are many things that could be said about Moses. Many things, right? He was the greatest prophet of all time. He was the man of God, we saw in our text earlier. He was also a man, we're told in Numbers 12, that was very meek or humble, more than all the people in the face of the earth. All of these would be appropriate ways to begin obituary about Moses. And yet the Lord chooses to describe him here as a servant of the Lord. Why? Because to be a servant in the house of the Lord is a privilege. It is a massive privilege. Why do you think the apostles often identified themselves in their letters, not as like even James? Think about James, the apostle James writing his, his letter. He could have started out his letter by saying, James, the half-brother of Jesus. That's how I would have started it. I feel like that's a lot of credibility. But no, he starts it, James, a slave of God. It is an unbelievable privilege to be a servant in the house of the Lord. And this is what his obituary says. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab <coughs> according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him. Who's he? The great mystery. Who's he? <coughs> There's nobody else there because nobody knows where Moses is buried, it says. He buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. And Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes was undimmed and his vigor unabated. That's amazing. He buried him. I believe that there were only two people present at that death. And I believe it was the Lord, and I believe it was Moses. And the Lord closed Moses' eyes in sleep, and he, in the dirt... The Lord got in the dirt and buried his servant. It makes me think about how the Lord, when he created Adam, got in the dirt and created Adam out of the dust of the ground. And now we see God taking his faithful servant and putting him back into the ground with which he came. It's a beautiful picture of the tenderness and goodness of God. 
in the lives of his people. Continuing on, verse 8. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days, which is the normal period of mourning in that time. And then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended, and Joshua, Yeshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and so the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses' life had come to an end, but the Lord's work continues. We have the closing to one chapter in Israel's history with the opening to the next. Joshua, also Yeshua, the son of Nun, is full of the spirit of wisdom, full of God's spirit. Remember Joshua, how he had been shadowing Moses all these years. Joshua was with Moses in the tent of meeting. Joshua, like Moses, heard the word of God. And Joshua now was taking the people to the next, their next part of their story, to receiving the inheritance. Deuteronomy concludes with anticipation, though. We anticipate the fulfillment of God's to the people of Israel, but we are anticipating something far greater at the conclusion of Deuteronomy. Verse 10 says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. Remember how Moses had said to them that the Lord was going to raise up a prophet from amongst their brothers that was going to be like him? And it is to him that they were to listen? But to the date that this particular part of Deuteronomy was written, and obviously Moses didn't write it, somebody wrote it later, but to that date and time, whenever that was, that prophet had not yet Come, but, the, but Deuteronomy closes with this kind of this anticipation of his coming. The scripture, the Old Testament scripture specifically, is continually anticipating the one that was to come. The one that was to come. And throughout Israel's history, there were many prophets, right? We have Elijah, we have Elisha, we have Isaiah, we have Jeremiah, we have Ezekiel, we have Daniel, we have many others. As each of these prophets appeared on the scene, the question surely was raised, is this the one? Is this the prophet like Moses? These were all great prophets. They faithfully served the Lord by bringing his word to his people. Some of them even performed signs and wonders. But none of these were the prophet that was promised. None of them were quite like Moses. What was it that made Moses unique? Well, he was the prophet who the Lord knew face to face. Speaking of the intimacy of his relationship, the Lord knows everybody. He knows all things. There's nothing that escapes from God's sight. We know this about God. And yet this is talking about something completely different. It's talking about 
that personal intimacy with God. The Lord knew him face to face. Now, we talk a lot in our Bible study about us knowing the Lord. We want to know God. Moses knew the Lord. He was meeting with him constantly, hearing from the word of God. But this speaks about God knowing him. And here's the truth. To know the Lord, one must be first known by the Lord. One must be first known by him. Think about Moses' life. Moses was out in the wilderness. He'd been out there for 40 years, shepherding the sheep, minding his own business. He's doing his thing. He doesn't know the Lord. He knows about him, but he doesn't know him until the Lord came to him in the burning bush and revealed himself and began the 40-year the journey of revealing himself. To Moses. Moses knew the Lord because the Lord pursued him and came to him first. He met with Moses often, speaking to him like a man <coughs> speaks to a friend. He met with him on the mountain of Sinai. Remember how we, we talked about him, Moses, going up into that dark cloud, meeting with God for 40 days. He met with him in the tent of meeting. Moses sat in the presence of the Lord, hearing him, his voice, communicating, and then communicating what God said to him to his people. Moses, who through signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do, and mighty power and great deeds of terror, delivered the people of God from slavery in Egypt. He mediated the covenant with the people at Sinai. He delivered them safely to the edge of the Jordan River to receive their inheritance. Through him they were fed from, with bread from heaven. They were given water from rocks. They achieved amazing victories over enemies greater than they, all through the work of Moses. And for hundreds and thousands of years, Israel waited for this promised prophet to come, one that would be great like Moses. And at last, true to his word, God raised up from among their brothers, from within Israel, a prophet that was like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, but not as a servant, as a son. Hebrews 1 tells us that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So not only did God know this prophet face to face, but he knew him face to face from all eternity. This is not just any ordinary prophet. This is not just any ordinary man. This is God himself come in the flesh. We see the Father in heaven testifying that his son is this very prophet that was promised by Moses in Deuteronomy. Where do we see this? On another mountain. We see... Um, in the presence of Peter, James, and John. And who else was on this mountain? Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. 
Surely you hear the echo of Deuteronomy as the voice of God thunders from the clouds saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. The prophet that was promised, the one who was greater than Moses, was here. Moses was a man of God, a servant of God. But Jesus is greater. He is the eternal begotten son of God. Hebrews 3 says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify what to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses is pointing forward to the time of Jesus. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Moses began his ministry with great signs and wonders. He faced off against the greatest world power of his time, the Pharaoh and his army, delivering God's people out of slavery, bringing them into covenant with their God, giving them his law, teaching them to walk in his ways. And he ended his ministry with a sermon on the mount and blessing the people before his death. Jesus began his ministry the way that Moses ended his He began his ministry with a sermon on the mount. He began his sermon with a blessing. Jesus brought to God's people the new covenant. He gave them God's law. He taught us to walk in the ways of God. He performed signs and wonders in the land before the eyes of the people. He fed the multitudes in the wilderness. He healed the sick. He caused the lame to walk. He forgave sins. He offered living water to the thirsty. And his final act, he led the people of God through the greatest exodus of all. In his death and resurrection, which happened before the eyes of all Israel, Jesus defeated his greatest enemy and ours, Satan. And leading his people out of slavery to sin and death, he restored them to right fellowship with God. This greater Moses does not just stop short of bringing God's people into the land of blessing, but he, the true and better Yeshua, the true and better Joshua, himself leads them safely home into their promised inheritance, into eternal life, into the presence of God, into the blessed happiness of God. Eternal life, the presence of God, living, eternal life is living life in the presence of God, living before the face of God. This is what this whole book has been about. This is what Moses has been urging his people toward, living in that fullness of the blessing of God through obedience to his word. And this is what the true and greater Moses, Jesus, has made possible. Listen once again to the concluding words of Moses' blessing. Moses had prophetically speaking of a time when Israel, the people of God, would live fully in the blessing of God. And they did experience God's blessing, but not fully. So that time has yet to come. Listen to these words. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help. Through the skies in his majesty, the eternal God is your dwelling place. 
and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. Now, think about those words. We're still waiting for those words to come true. In light of these words, hear the echoes of Deuteronomy in the words of the Apostle John in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The true and greater prophet, Jesus, is none other than the God of Israel himself, who rides through the heaven to our help. He is the eternal God who is our dwelling place. And underneath him are the everlasting arms. And it is Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who will ultimately thrust out the enemy and destroy them as is promised in this blessing and as we heard about in Moses' song. And speaking of Moses' song, Revelation 15 brings Moses' song to us again. Listen to Revelations 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what happened, what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses. The Song of Moses from Deuteronomy is going to be sung in some future time by the saints surrounding the throne. But not only that, listen to these words. And they sing the Song of Moses, the servant of God, and the Song of the Lamb. The Song of Moses is the Song of the Lamb. Isn't that beautiful? We will be singing the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb surrounded surrounding his throne. And it says, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, the God, God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteousness, righteous acts have been revealed. Because of Jesus, there is coming a day where he will thrust out the enemy that is before us, ultimately and finally and completely. And people, God's people, will finally live truly in safety. Back to Deuteronomy. It says, So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine, whose heavens dropped down dew, 
Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. This is the blueprint. Moses' final words go well beyond the promised land. He is pointing to something greater, the reality that you and I are still waiting for, the reality that is to come. Revelation says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. This is what Deuteronomy is pointing us to. This is what all of us wait for and long for. And this is what helps us remembering this, navigate through the chaotic times in which we live this day is coming. His word is trustworthy and true. These are no empty words for us. And when that day comes, we will join with a chorus of saints from all time. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Maranatha, even so come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word and for the hope that it gives us of this day that we all long for, where we will see your face and we will live in the blessed state of happiness in your presence. We thank you that your word is faithful and true and that we can count on it, and we can put all of our confidence in that. Help us to live faithfully today as we wait. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.